right across the country, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Sophia Osborne, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This past March, Terra was at a conference on cities and climate change that was held in Edmonton by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. If you don't know, this is the United Nations International Body of Science on All Things Climate. We thought we aired all the content from that conference, but lo and behold, another interview resurfaced. In this week's episode, Terra Informa alum Chris Chenyan Phillips interviewed Valérie Maison Delmont, French climate scientist and co-chair for the IPCC Working Group 1, which aims at assessing the physical scientific basis of the climate system and climate change. Maison Delmont has a PhD in the physics of fluid and has extensive experience in communicating principles of physics and climate change to the public. That story is coming up right after some environmental headlines. cities around the globe, the city of Edmonton is considering the viability of a bike sharing program. Bike sharing technology and programs have become significantly cheaper since they began popping up and allow users to unlock bikes using SMS text message and cost about $1 per hour of use. A number of Canadian cities have been collaborating with a company called Dropbike to launch bike shares. The nine Canadian locations include Kingston, Oshawa and Waterloo in Ontario, and the University of British Columbia campus, Victoria, and Kelowna in British Columbia. This is particularly exciting given Edmonton's new bike lanes, which are seeing increased use since their implementation, according to surveys and statistics conducted by the City of Edmonton. In the last year since June 2016, when Edmonton's new downtown bicycle grid was implemented, we've seen a 72% increase in the median number of downtown summer cyclists. The potential of a bike share program would make bike lane use even more accessible. In more local Edmonton news, the city is piloting a program that allows urban agriculture and community gardeners alike the chance to farm on land that would otherwise be vacant. The program received a lot of interest when it was initially introduced, But upon seeing the requirements and potential limitations of gardening in the spaces, the pilot has been a bit slow on the uptake. Water sources are limited, the gardens must be in raised beds that are deconstructed at the end of the season, and gardeners must pay liability insurance. The planner on the file, Catherine Lennon, acknowledged that it's, quote, not ideal, unquote, but that we can hope for the program to evolve to become less cumbersome for potential gardeners. It's a small step in changing the way that we view and use city land. Interest in local sustainable food systems also coincides with city discussions around the preservation of farmland that is quickly shrinking in the face of increasing urban sprawl and development. The city is launching a task force in charge of taking stock of Edmonton's best land and discussing how to best protect those lands. Potential options that have been used by other municipalities include green belts and land held in trust.
Now, here's Chris Changyan Phillips speaking with French climate scientist Valérie Maison-Delmont at the Conference on Cities and Climate Change held in Edmonton this past March by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Ms. Maison-Delmont told Chris about her position with the IPCC and her experience communicating the complex physics of climate change to casual audiences and the importance of doing so. Hi, my name is Valérie Masson-Delmotte. I'm a French climate scientist, and I'm also the co-chair of the working group one of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, dealing with a, a physical science basis. What's working group's one responsibility? So the goal of um, this working group is uh, to assess, based on the scientific literature, the state of knowledge related to observed climate change, understanding why climate is changing, um, understanding the processes that shape the climate response to perturbations, and uh, providing projections of future climate together with an understanding of the associated confidence or uncertainties. And you have done some of that work yourself of um, working on climate physics and paleoclimatology, is that right? Yes, my, my initial background was in uh, uh, theoretical physics and fluid physics. Then I did a PhD thesis on um, climate modeling, at the time mostly atmospheric modeling, and I used climate models to understand past climate changes. And then I was a little fed up of the work with models, so I decided to work on the production of data. So I worked with ice cores in Greenland, in Antarctica, in Tibet, and uh, developed uh, physics and geochemistry measurements on these ice cores to characterize past changes in polar climate, water cycle. And I also used these data to test climate models, how um, skilled they were to represent past polar climate changes, trying also to bridge uh, what we learned from the past on different timescales to what it tells about the future as well. When you say you worked with ice cores, do you mean you got to go to, to like Greenland and do, do some of the coring? Exactly, I went two times for more than two months in the top of the Greenland ice sheet, spending weeks cutting um, ice core cylinders into <laughs> small pieces and doing some uh, field measurements as well. So the weather here in Edmonton is win in winter is not that unfamiliar for me. <laughs> so uh, you now serve as co-chair for Working Group 1. What was the path to becoming a co-chair? I can just explain my relationship with IPCC reports. The first one I was never aware of. The second one, it was published when I was a PhD student and I really enjoyed, you know, reading it as a, as a, a sort of encyclopedia of, of climate research for topics I was not familiar with. And I used it to look at key references and then looked at who cited these references so that you can see which knowledge had been developed over time. And the third one, I used it, um, I was a scientist, I used it for teaching because of the quality of the figures especially that were quite helpful to provide a sort of overview to my students. And then I applied to be a lead author of the fourth one for the chapter on past climates. I was extremely proud to be selected and the process was uh, something really unusual in the way that um, you assess the literature, you are exposed to read a lot with a critical mind, exchange views with others. Um, you have full freedom to write your assessment and then you have this amazing review process where 
Uh, tens or hundreds of other scientists criticize, comment, help you improve your assessment. And it's very unusual in terms of the level of cooperation. And then I had promised my husband I would never do that again, <laughs> because at the time I had two small children, and it was quite time consuming, because you have to understand that the authors, they do it on top of their research or teaching or administrative duties. So a lot of that work is happening free, uh, without being paid, actually, during weekends and holidays. <laughs> And then I, um, after a few years, I realized I really liked that. <laughs> so I applied to be the uh, coordinated, coordinating lead author for the fifth assessment report, again, for the chapter on past climates. And then it was really interesting because it was not writing myself the assessment. It was coordinating within a chapter across chapters, looking at the coherency and distillating the key findings. So from... Um, the assessment of the literature to an executive summary to a summary for policymakers. And I was a participant to this approval session where this summary for policymakers is approved line by line, word by word, by the panel, which consists of delegates from all governments. And it's quite interesting in terms of the dialogue between science and policy. So the material is the content of the chapters, but sometimes it helps to you know, reformulate things so they are clearer. And sometimes you also understand that science is uncomfortable for some governments. So it's also an interesting process. And therefore, I realized the other half of the IPCC, which I, I couldn't see as a scientist, which is this uh, science policy dialogue. And um, a few years later, uh, the French government approached me and asked me if I would accept to be a, their candidate for, the, for being a, a co-chair for the AR6. So I was, I was elected um, as a co-chair just before COP21, so I was also invited to um, um, listen and, and, and look at these negotiations. COP21, that's like the, the annual meeting, this is the 21st of the annual meeting. That was the 21st meeting of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, where policymakers from around the world negotiated the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm -hmm. It was interesting to observe uh, negotiators, it's another word compared to scientists, um, and this Paris Agreement, uh, together with other um, in, uh, United Nations um, agendas from Euro 2015, actually shape a lot of what we are doing now. Because you had agreement on sustainable development goals, on a framework to reduce the risk of natural disasters, and the Paris Agreement. And um, for this cycle of the IPCC, we're really working in a very different manner. We're working across disciplines very strongly, so that to provide the best state of knowledge available today uh, to policymakers, but I also have in mind citizen, young people, not just policymakers. And, and we just don't look at climate change only. We look at climate change, but also sustainable development, poverty, inequalities, conservation of biodiversity, all these various dimensions, because sometimes you have synergies um, on risks and solutions, and sometimes you have trade-offs, and it's really important to identify them. Hmm. You talk about, you've talked about some of the ways that you've used the assessment report. Who, who is the intended reading audience of the assessment report? So the assessment reports, they are targeted for the summary for policymakers to government, so not just prime ministers, but also advisors in, at minister levels. Uh, people who are involved with decision-making, so that they are provided with the best state of knowledge. 
This meeting now in Edmonton is also targeted to local policymakers, uh, practitioners in cities, because that's the scale where a lot of action is taken and a lot of um, risk is also present uh, related to climate change. Um, and I think um, the IPCC reports are mandated to do that, but they have other values. And one of the values is uh, um, uh, these reports are very helpful for the maturation of science by itself. Um, do you know that each year you have 20,000 papers published with the keyword climate change in the scientific literature? Nobody is able to look at that. And even the brightest scientists, they have a very narrow you know, focus. They are only looking at part of that literature. So the collective effort is really unique. It does not exist in other fields. And by looking at, with critical minds, <laughs> multiple critical minds, by, by looking at previous results, revisiting them, we see what is robust. We see what is emerging. Uh, we, we also understand sometimes why different results disagree. So what are the sources of uncertainties behind scientific controversies? And by doing that, it's also a way to um, put light on future research directions. You're kind of the curator of the, that massive amount up there. I'm the facilitator. <laughs> so uh, as a co-chair, I'm, I'm there together with people helping me, a technical support unit of 10 people in Paris-Saclay University, France, mm. and my fellow co-chair. And we are just there to facilitate the work of the authors. Mm. So we organize um, brainstorming meetings, uh, providing guidance um, for the scoping of the reports. And we organize lead author meetings. We try to facilitate the work of the authors. Uh, we try to engage with early career scientists as well. Um, and we are also, of course, involved in the selection of the authors themselves. So I can give a few, a few elements. So we're looking at expertise first. And for that, we look at publications of the scientists. But we also look at diversity because experience shows um, assessments are better when you have a diverse set of minds. Not everyone trains the same way. So uh, we look for renewal. Two thirds of our authors for the Working Group 1 report are new. Uh, we look at the uh, diversity of region, uh, regional origin, scientists from the developing world, scientists from the developed world. I'm also particularly attentive to gender. You have also, in, uh, you've also worked on other ways to sort of educate people about climate change through writing, right? Can you t tell me a little bit about that? Yes, I was also involved in uh, different activities for outreach and education, um, some exhibits. Uh, sometimes using art and science, for instance, in the Science Museum in Paris. Um, another example is uh, the adventure of a climate train that ran in France at the time of COP21 and was adapted for Morocco at the time of COP22 in Marrakech. So it's like a, a railway museum <laughs> and each coach um, is an exhibit. Um, and it was designed to show uh, what we know about past climates as a sort of curiosity cabinet, what's happening now. So based on facts, and then what are the future, possible futures, um, especially with respect to things that are close to people's hearts. So with respect to, you know, your local water resources, your local typical iconic agricultural products. So I know here maple syrup is important. In France, um, grape is important. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also looked at risks uh, specific for France, like urban heat island effects. And uh, many French cities were hit by very intense heat waves recently. So we illustrated how this can change in a warmer world. 
and we had a coach that was a, a space for debate. And the guides in that um, railway museum, <laughs> uh, the guides were scientists, so PhD students, technicians, engineers, uh, researchers of various ages and backgrounds. And th that was a remarkable experience of uh, direct exchange um, with curious people coming there because it was free, because it was in the city center, not because they were interested in climate change, not always. In France and in Morocco, you know, it's different countries, different religions, different cultures, different levels of developments, the questions were the same. And the questions were, well, I've observed that in my practice, in my village, in my town. Do you know what's the reason for that? And what could happen in the future? And what can I do? What can I do myself? But why, do not, why don't I have the tools to act faster? Why is not my local government, my national government acting more? So there were questions like that all the time. And what was also striking was that many people never took time to think about it. Mm to look at the facts, to discuss with scientists. So it was also interesting to see, you know, in terms of human experience, um, a form of gravity in people's eyes, you know, them digesting this knowledge and then willing to be part of it. Who, sorry, who organized the climate train? Who? It came from three French climate scientists. So they had this dream. <laughs> and then they managed to convince uh, the French railway. They managed to convince ministers to uh, provide funding and sponsors. Uh, and sponsors were like the French chemical industries because they need science. They provide solutions. Uh, so it was also interesting in terms of uh, the mix between these sponsors who were also at the end of the train and the visitors. Uh, it was really interesting to see that. And what was your role in that? I was one of the guides during a week, day and night in the train, and it was a very stimulating experience. And I also wrote a couple of books for children and for the general public. And the books for children were great because I also had children of that age at the time, so it was also uh, interesting in terms of thinking of transmission. And they were written by going to a classroom, listening to the questions from, from the children, and each chapter had to be the answer to a question from children. And then the book was reviewed by the children at the end. Mm -hmm. So that was a nice experience because adults are very polite, well-educated. So when you, you explain your science to them, they say, oh, that's interesting, which means sometimes they just don't get it because it's too you know, technocratic or something like that. But when you go to children who are 9 to 10 years old, when they don't understand, they say it very frankly. And it's really helpful. So. For me, it was a very nice experience in terms of uh, trying to convey a positive uh, message about climate change to young people who are not responsible of anything and just give them levers to understand and levers to act. And it was also interesting because I think if you can explain climate change to children, to teenagers, you can explain to everyone. And sometimes teenagers know more than adults about many of these things. Through these various methods of public education, like what, what is the... How would you describe the the situation that you're trying to change? Like, like when you're when you're involved in a project like the the climate train or these books. Like, I'm thinking of it, living in Alberta and the number of people who don't believe that climate change is happening. Like, how would you characterize the situation right now globally? What I think is that. Um, the way I try to describe that is like an impressionist painting. You know these paintings, it sort of touches of color. And when you see them from a distance, you have a big picture, you understand what it's about, and you see the beauty of it. But when you have only a zoom on one part, you only see uh, uh, some touches of colors with no meaning. 
So I think the idea of um, um, outreach of these books is to help people see the big picture. So yeah, weather is here. Sometimes you have a cold winter, and that's the weather. That's what you perceive where you live. And sometimes you will be sensitive to that cold wave, and you will remember that. And you are not sensitive as a human being to a gradual trend occurring over decades. In some areas, climate change is visible. Um, it's visible when you see glaciers retreating. It's visible when you observe nature. And you know, like the timing when uh, uh, flowers appear, or when you have your harvest. But for instance, when you live in the city, sometimes it's quite invisible. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to explain how we work, what are our methods, um, to also create uh, ownership of the scientific data by people, and to help them see that when you go out of your own perception, and you look at objective measurements, and with a critical mind, and you bring them together, you have this very clear picture of a warming climate. And I also try to explain physics, like when you had uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, they act as a blanket, an invisible blanket. And that's also, that also works with the children. So, you know, when you put a blanket, blanket on your body, you don't feel it immediately. It doesn't bring heat. It just traps your own heat. And after a while, you have a comfortable, warm condition around you. And then if you keep adding blankets, of course, at some level, you will feel... Um, and uncomfortable because um, your body temperature is going up. And that's exactly what we do by adding greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. At the beginning, you just don't see it. And then it traps heat, so it's causing warming at the surface of the Earth. And then this warming is trapped. Most of it is trapped in the oceans. It's also invisible. You know, it's warmer air masses that go towards depths. But that's causing, that's making climate change irreversible because you are adding heat, the oceans are warmer, whatever we do this extra heat will be released to the atmosphere later on. And because these oceans are water, because um, um, land ice is melting, sea level is rising as a key indicator of a warmer climate. I also explained that when you have a warmer mean climate, then you are more likely to have heat waves, and especially unusual heat waves, and that's what's observed. And when the air is warmer, it can transport more moisture, uh, typically 7% more moisture per degree Celsius of warming. And that's why the same storm today sometimes doesn't have the same characteristics of 50 years ago, because it can transport more heavy rainfall than before. So I try to explain you know, these basic things that are associated with physics. And an example for the northern high latitudes, like here, is also the fact that when you have the melt of snow, an earlier melt of snow, an earlier melt of sea ice, you replace a white bright surface by a darker one, you know, land or ocean. And these darker surfaces do not have the mirror effect, so they absorb more um, of the solar radiation. And that's the reason why warm warming is actually amplified when you go towards the Arctic. So I try to explain, you know, these basic principles of physics that help to make sense of the diversity of characteristics of climate change. So you talked about this impressionistic, like, big picture that you try to help people see. And you've worked, at, like, in some pretty influential roles for maybe the most influential organization in the world for, like, giving us a definitive authoritative picture of what's happening with climate change. So how much responsibility do you think the IPCC should take for how well that science is digesting lore. And again, I'm, I'm thinking of 
Alberta and the number of people here who, who, don't, who, don't not, who do not believe that climate change is happening, who do not believe that humans have any role in it if it is happening, like how much responsibility should the IPCC take for that? You know, it's not about beliefs. You don't believe your mobile phone is working. You don't believe a, a plane can take off. It's based on physics. It's based on engineering. And it's the same with uh, the science behind, you know, um, understanding climate change. So what's important is to help people understand the methods, the fact that we have no agenda. We're just there to, you know, climate research is driven initially by curiosity. It was not driven by anything related to greenhouse gas emissions or what sectors or what region is responsible for what. It was driven by people willing to understand how the atmosphere works, how the ocean works, how, why there are different climates on different planets. And I think there are things that belong to the IPCC, providing the best rigorous assessment, objective assessment of, of the state of climate, and including working with scientists from different universities. And these scientists, they are local resources because they know well the science, they can also explain it locally. We need mediators, we need people in the media, we need people who, in, in you know, museums, in people who are experts in communication, communication of science, to translate our findings so that they can be used by everyone. We need teachers, to understand climate science and explain it to children, to teenagers, to young adults. So I think there are things that belong to the IPCC, but there are lots of things that belong you know, to a number of us locally and um, as a community. Uh, and the IPCC cannot do that, and it's not its mandate. When does the uh, sixth assessment report come out? So we're preparing three special reports. For this October, one on 1.5 degree Celsius warming, uh, it's really underway. We just received 25,000 review comments on the draft of the report, and the authors will answer to these uh, comments and revise their draft, and then we'll prepare the summary for policymakers for submission to the, to the governments. We're preparing a special report on the ocean and, and the cryosphere, so snow, ice, frozen ground, in, in a changing climate. That one is really interesting. It covers high mountains, polar regions, north and south, coasts, oceans, managing risks, and it's about resilience and people and biodiversity as well. It's for 2019, one on climate change and land, and it also touches things like land degradation, desertification, food security, sustainable land management, and it's also prepared for 2019, and finally the main assessment reports for each working group for 2021. Mm -hmm. So I call that Herculean efforts. Because as a co-chair, I'm involved in all of uh, the supervision of all of these reports, but it's also so stimulating. I really believe we need to give keys, you know, for young people to be able to act. And education is a way to empower you, because it gives you ways to understand, and it can also train you to act. And um, what was interesting was that the uh, partnership of academies of sciences of the world agreed to a statement to strengthen education related to climate change. And I like the words they used because they said we need to uh, teach the children of the world uh, to learn and to act on, based on science, based on science education, with a critical mind and a hopeful heart. All right. Thanks, Valerie. You're welcome. That was Chris Chengyan Phillips speaking with French climate scientist Valérie Messon-Delmont at the IPCC Cities and Climate Change Conference. 
If you want to hear even more stories like this, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors Chris Changan Phillips, Amanda Rooney, Jason Wong, Shelley Jodwin, and Hannah Cummingham. I've been your host, Sophia Osborne. Catch you next week.